Mysteries to Die For is sponsored by Down and Out Books. Mickey Finn, 21st Century Noir, Volume 2, is a crime fiction cocktail that will again knock readers into a literary stupor. Nineteen contributors push hard against the boundaries of crime fiction, driving their work into places short crime fiction doesn't often go, into a world where the mean streets seem gentrified by comparison, and happy endings are the exception rather than the rule. And they do all this in contemporary settings, bringing noir into the 21st century. Welcome to Mysteries to Die For. Actually, I messed that up. Hold on. (laughs) You are still welcome to Mysteries to Die For. (laughs) I am T.G. Wolf, and I'm here with Jack, my piano player and producer. This is a podcast where we combine storytelling with original and live music to put you at the heart of murder, mystery, and mayhem. Some episodes will be my own, and others will be classics that help shape the mystery genre we know today. These are arrangements, which means instead of word-for-word readings, you get a performance that's meant to be heard. Jack and I perform these live, front to back, no breaks, no fakes, no retakes. This is season three, Enter the Detective. This season contains adaptations of the first cases for detectives. Some will be characters that you know from books, screen, and stage. The others will be lesser known, but with great stories that influence those that followed. Episode 11 is about giving them what they want to see. This is Whimsy and Whose Body? An adaptation of Whose Body by Dorothy L. Sayers. I gotta tell you, Jack, I like that little piano vibrato at the front. That was, I like that. <laughs> Remind me about the flutter of bird wings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I didn't mess up, despite the fact I interrupted the entire thing to say, hey, I messed up. Anyway, am I? is it my turn? No, I didn't do my turn yet, but you can go first if you want. But you stopped talking and started looking at me. I figured well, it was Well, because turn. I wanted to comment on your on the piano playing. It was awesome. I think those things are proved to our audience that this is filmed live, filmed, recorded live. Whatever. I'm going first then. Okay. Today's author, author is Dorothy Lace Sayers, and she was born in 1893. Her father was a reverend working as a <clears throat> chaplain, a rector, and a school headmaster. She went to Somerville College, Oxford, graduating in 1915. And according to Wikipedia, because that's obviously a credible source, the college did not award degrees to women at the time. Uh, when they changed their position, Dorothy received her degree. Uh, she went on to receive her Master's of Arts in 1920. Dorothy's first publication was a book of poetry in 1916. She published several other volumes of poetry before her first mystery, Whose Body, came out in 1923 and introduced Lord Peter Whimsey. Dorothy worked a day job. From 1922 to 31, she worked as a copywriter at an advertising agency. Uh, she wrote the copy for some products that are still around, like Guinness Beer. Uh, the advertising industry was setting of Lord Peter's eighth mystery, following the old say of ri- saying of writing what you know. Oh my gosh, I can't read. Uh, the detection, de- the detection club, okay, was formed in 1930 by a group of British mystery writers, founding the members, including. Founding members including Baroness Emma Ortsey and Agatha Christie, two we have featured on Mysteries to Die For. The Detection Club still exists today. Okay, now it's my turn. Yes. So the mode of death in Lord Peter Whimsey's first mystery is a broken back. Broken back, broken neck. So according to the Virginia Spinal Institute, spinal fractures and dislocations of the vertebrae can result from high-velocity accidents that occur in the, in the neck, the mid-back, or the low-back. High-velocity accidents are associated with motor vehicle accidents, falls from heights, or sports accidents. 
Neck fractures, so those are the high, high back, can cause bone fragments to pinch and damage the spinal cord or surrounding nerves. Damage or injury to the spinal cord can lead to paralysis or death. So according to a PBS story, fatally damaging the spinal cord isn't easy. The spine itself has 33 vertebrae bones that stack tightly from the base of the skull to the tailbone. Between the bones are thin discs of spongy cartilage that gives us flexibility. And then the spinal column is encased in muscle, and those muscles flex to protect the bones throughout the, throughout the spine, but especially at the top and in the neck. So for death to occur, a sudden jerking needs to twist the vertebrae, causing a scissoring effect, and then this could damage the phrenic nerve. So this nerve, the phrenic nerve, is involved in breathing, and damaging it can lead to respiratory failure. Another way that this type of injury can cause death is called spinal shock, and this is where the injury impairs the nerves that control blood pressure and heart rate. So this can lead to a problem with organs processing blood and oxygen. And studies have shown, though, that a force of greater than 3,000 newtons is needed to fracture the, the cervical spine, which is the spine at the top of the neck. And that's equivalent to the impact created by a 500-pound car crashing into a wall at 30 miles an hour. I always love statistics like that. All right, Jack, so with that, we are nearly ready to begin. Well, Jack, well, I guess he doesn't reset his microphone since he went first today. But the main reason we're doing these adaptations is because the language in these earliest mysteries can still be hard. Um, it can be hard to listen to with our modern ear if the speech cadence is just different. And most of the stories that we're doing are full-length books and not really created for listening. They were created for reading, for filling evenings and, and long afternoons. So with this adaptations, we're keeping the heart of the story, preserving the groundbreaking narrative, but packing it up for easier digestion. Character names are in the show notes. See if you can figure out, before Lord Peter Whimsey does, exactly whose body it is. All right, Jack, take us in. Chapter 1, the, wick, the victor's wife, <laughs> I think we're just on a roll today, try it again. Chapter 1, the vicar's wife told my mother. The Duke and Duchess of Denver named me their second son, Peter Death Braden Whimsey. I always thought my parents must have had a touch of sight in naming me as they did. I am not an overly passionate person as they go. Really, I have only two obsessions, as it were. The first is the collection and reading of great works from the Middle Ages. This is an expensive and highly impractical pursuit, but one that makes me very happy. My second is solving the odd mystery. The puzzle of it engages my brain as little else does. It is possibly the most practical thing about me. Recently, the Duke of Winter engaged me to find a set of the Duchess's emeralds that had gone missing. Scotland Yard focused below the stairs. I didn't blame them too much. Power in the modern British society limited the effectiveness of the police in many situations. Situations where the younger son of a duke, or as it were here, the younger brother of a duke, had both access, latitude, and leverage. On this bleak November day in 1920-something, my mind was focused on an auction that included four works published in the 14th century, the one by Dante I especially wanted. In my haste for a good seat, I'd forgotten my catalog and was just popping back into my Piccadilly flat to retrieve it. Yes, Your Grace, I did say he left, but I believe I heard his latch key. One moment. Bunter, my all-around man, held the candlestick telephone in his hand, carefully burying the carbon microphone in his chest. Your mother, he said. Always welcome, I reached for the phone. Bunter, see if you can find my catalog. It's likely to be on the dining table or by my bed. I put the receiver to my ear. How are you, mother? Fine, fine, the dowager duchess said. My mother had survived my father's death very well. 
Now a few years removed, she seemed happier than ever with the freedom that came with her daughter-in-law having the responsibility of the title. I learned of a most odd situation, she said. I met Mrs. Thogmorton for tea. She's the vicar's wife here at St. John in the front of the gate. She was distressed as Mr. Tibbs, the architect engaged to design the repair of the roof and spire, called to say he wouldn't be about today, his usual day. It seems he found a body in his bathtub. I leaned my hip against the table. A fish caught on a hook. Did Mr. Tibbs know the body? It seems not, my mother said. The body was, al fresco as they say, wearing nothing but a pince-nez, his glasses. Imagine waking up one morning and finding a complete stranger, dead nonetheless, in your bathtub. Reading in the tub, was he, I said. Certainly not, she said, as there was no book and no water, and it was not the man's home. Thinking about it, I'm not certain finding a living stranger in a bathtub would be any more of a comfort. I suppose the benefit of a live is that he could leave under his own power. I know Mr. Tibbs a bit from his work here at the church. He's a nervous little man, but very good with church roofs. I was hoping you could pay a visit and offer my support. In the mirror across from me, I saw a broad grin grow across my face. Of course, Mother, you know I'm at your service. What is the address? Queen Caroline Mansions, Battersea, she said. It's not a neighborhood where you'd think something like this would happen. I laughed. I'm not sure there is a London neighborhood where, you would, where finding a dead man in your bathtub would be expected. I will pay the call and report back. My mother laughed. I hardly think reporting is the proper word. I chuckled because we parted before we... I chuckled as we parted because reporting was exactly the right word and my mother knew it. She was nearly as keen on mystery as I was. I set down the phone and receiver just as Bunter rejoined me with the catalog. Change in plans, Bunter. You're going to the auction. Look here, I've marked the lots I want in my top price. Do your best. I trust none like you. I must change. I can't go in all this black. I, I look like an undertaker. One of the wonderful things about Bunder is he doesn't get all bothered about doing his regular job when he's been sent on a special one. I've heard tell of men so dedicated to their profession that getting one to do anything other than the usual is akin to pulling teeth, bloody and painful. Not my Bunter. Now I am not a handsome man, and I blame my father. Like him, my face is too long, my hair so light to be nearly white. It isn't age that put my hair in this color as I'm still close to 20 years from that point. This is all my father's doing. Consequently, black had a tendency to wash out the little color I have, and yet at times it was necessary, such as going to the auction house. For paying an unexpected call on an architect, I chose lighter colors. My gray suit with brown shoes and a coordinating tie made me much more approachable, in my opinion. I selected my favorite hat and with the custom-made walking stick with the silver handle. I tucked a monocle into my pocket and walked out the door. Chapter 2. Naked, Nearsighted, and Dead I arrived at Queen Caroline Mansions just as Scotland Yard was leaving. I tucked back in the cab, waiting a moment even as the cab driver gave me the odd eye. The man climbing into the cab was Inspector Suggs, a man of quick decision and shallow thought. Suggs disliked me, to put it mildly. With finally Suggs out of sight, I mounted the steps with an enthusiasm that might be considered unseemly. I painted an appropriately somber expression on my face and gained entry to the Tibbs household. Tibbs himself opened the door. At mention of my mother, Mr. Tibbs practically leapt backward, admitting my entry. Tibbs was, as my mother said, a nervous small man. How much of the nerves before me could be chalked up to finding a dead naked stranger in one's bath? Tibbs had medium blonde hair that was making a retreat and a bruise over his left eyebrow. I'm grateful you thought to come, Lord Peter, Tibbs said. I'm afraid I, I don't know what to do. The police have just left promising to remove the body. My mother, who lives with me, is nearly deaf. 
I haven't explained to her why she can't use the bathroom. She's made something up in her own mind, which has to be better than the truth. The body is still here, I said, working hard not to sound too anxious. Yes. Would you like to see it, he asked. If it's convenient, I said, employing the sound of being bored that I'd perfected in my teens. What happened, if you don't mind my asking? I followed Tibbs from his parlor, listening as he spoke. My girl, Gladys, woke me around eight this morning in quite a state, as you can imagine. We went to the bathroom together, and there indeed was a man in our bathtub wearing naught but a pince-nez. His color wasn't natural. He wasn't moving, not his chest nor any other part of him. I had Gladys ring for the yard. Having retrieved a key from his room, Tibbs unlocked the bathroom. Inspector Suggs took the key with him, but I keep a second of all keys, just in case. Most insightful man, I said, entering the bathroom while Tibbs stayed at the door. The bathroom was long and narrow, with the head of the tub under an open window. The body of the, of the body in the tub was male, in the late 40s to 50s. He was clean as gentlemen are. He had thick, dark hair, modernly styled, although he did have a buildup of wax in his ears. His hands were clean, with calluses on the pads and extremely low fingernails, as if he bit them off regularly. His weight said he hadn't missed many meals, and the balls of his feet had blisters. The pince-nez were of excellent quality. Upon inspection, I found that they were of a strong prescription. The man, it seemed, was very nearsighted. The chain hanging from it was a high-quality gold, artistically rendered in a pattern that was most likely a commissioned work. There was no obvious cause of death, no wounds upon the body to indicate a knife or other life-ending instrument. Did Inspector Suggs suggest a means of death, I asked? Sir Julian Freak came by to look at the man, Tibbs said. He's the head of St. Luke's Hospital, just at the other end of our building. Sir Julian is a highly respected surgeon and expert on nerves. I understand Suggs called to see if the hospital was missing a cadaver. It was not. Suggs asked if Sir Julian could send someone to look at this, um, a man, and Sir Julian came himself. He said he died of a broken neck. I followed the particulars of the vertebrae enough to understand that, but little more. I turned my attention to the window. Leave your windows open, too. It does help balance out the temperature, although it is a little bit chilly this time of year for my taste. The soot is an unfortunate consequence, but manageable if you don't mind the effort. We do not leave the window open as a rule, he said with a spine he had not previously shown. Gladys neglected to close it last night. I have spoken to her sternly about it. Why, anyone could gain access. Queen Carolyn Mansions was a four-story building with five sets of flats. Tibbs lived on the center grouping, having the top floor. The open windows showed signs that it was the means of entry to the bathroom. There were smudges in the soot where fingers had pressed against the sill. I leaned out, using my walking stick, which is cleverly marked by the quarter foot, to measure the distance to the roof. Gathering what I could surreptitiously, we left the room, Thibbs relocking it and returning to the parlor where his mother not sat. Mother, this is Lord Peter, Tibbs said, speaking loud enough to be heard across the street. His mother is the Dowager Duchess of Denver. Tibbs favored his mother with the same eyes and mouth. She was What was soft on him was charming on her. Would you care for tea? She asked with bright eyes. Thank you, most gracious of you to offer. She cocked her head, and this time I tried at Tibbs' volume, nodding as I went. Yes, thank you. I drifted to the windows overlooking the street. It was a good neighborhood with people toing and froing, still ignorant of the mystery in their midst. Alfred is making a fuss over the bathroom, Mrs. Tibbs said, pulling on the cord that was signal her maid. I told him weeks ago he should call the landlord about the tub, but really there was no reason to call in Scotland Yard. Alfred always did overdo things, even as a boy. Mr. Tibbs, whose given name was apparently Alfred, blushed but had the grace not to contradict his mother. Where was your household last night? I asked Tibbs. Mother was here all night with Gladys, he began. I worked, I worked out of the city yesterday, returning on the 1045 train. I was home by 1115. 
I ate a cold dinner Gladys left for me and went straight to bed. You didn't use the bathroom, I asked. No, he said. His eyes drifted from mine. I, I was tired after the long day. So tired, I, I walked into a door. He pointed to the bruise on his head. His wandering gaze might have been embarrassment, but it might have been. He was lying. Just as I was about to dive into it, an ambulance made the turn onto his street. That was my cue. I'm afraid I've just remembered an appointment, I said. T will have to wait for another time. While my exit boarded en route, it was necessary. I stepped into my cab just as Inspector Sugg alighted from the ambulance. Chapter 3. Et voila, he is gone. My disappointment at leaving the Tibbs residence so quickly was eased by Bunter's success at the auction. You secured the Dante, and for 60 pounds less than my top price. What should we spend it on? In truth, it is your money, as it was you who saved it. Come on now, Bunter, I can see there is something you have your eye on. As your lordship is so gracious, there is a double astigmate with a set of supplemental lenses that would prove most helpful in the case such as forgery. Butler Bunter conveniently pulled the catalog from his pocket, handing it over. It will allow me to make an enlargement right on the plate. It would be equally useful for footprints. The wide lens holds all types of opportunities. It's all Greek to me, I said to Bunter, handing back the catalog. A sum of 50 pounds seems out of line for a bit of glass, but I suppose you can say the same of 750 pounds for a dusty old book in a dead language. I would never say such a thing, my lord, Bunter said, a serious cast to his mouth. Of course you wouldn't, Bunter. I pay you 200 pounds a year to keep your thoughts to yourself. And for your coffee. I don't want to know how you do it. I'm perfectly content to think it's witchcraft. By the lens, Bunter. It's a shame we do not have access to Mr. Tibbs' bathroom. I should think your lens would be put to the test. The doorbell rang. Unless it's somebody interesting, I'm not in. Yes, your lordship, Bunter said, with an expression that anticipated the arrival of a new camera lens, not a caller. As I have developed an ardent pastime for mystery, Bunter has done the same for photography. The images he captures have been very helpful in unweaving webs. The man has a talent, and I, for one, do not waste it. Mr. Parker, Bunter said, reappearing with a hat in his hands. I was on my feet as one of my favorite people entered my home. Detective Charles Parker of Scotland Yard began as an acquaintance who shared a similar mind and was now a friend. Come in, Parker, come in. Bunter, bring in more of your voodoo coffee and cigars. Have a seat, Parker. It's a nasty night out, one perfect for crime. Tell me, you've brought one with you and I'll share what I have in my mind. Parker claimed the seat he generally did, laughing as he went. Queen Carolyn's Mansions? I went through there and know you have too. Sugg saw you and was none too happy. On the case then, are you? I asked. He shook his head as he selected a cigar from the box Bunter held open. I'm on the case of a missing financier, Sir Reuben Levy. It is most curious. Listen here. Sir Reuben went to bed last night around midnight, and when his man went to waken this morning, he was gone. He slept in his bed. His boots were set out in his parlor as they normally were. The clothes he wore the previous day were draped over an ottoman, all accounted for. No clothes from the previous day were missing, and all of the clean clothes were accounted for. When I asked the staff if anything unusual had been noticed, his valet pointed out that Sir Reuben's usual habit was to fold his clothes on the chair rather than string them over the ottoman. The maid, a very bright young lady, said Sir Reuben and Lady Levy shared a bed and, even with her abroad, he slept on his side of the bed. But last night, he slept in the center, doubling up the pillows. I don't know what Reuben Levy looked like, I asked. Parker puffed the newly lit cigar before continuing. He's in his early fifties, a Hebrew with dark complexion and black hair. I heard a body had been found, sans clothes and fitting the general description, and I went to have a look. 
While the dead man had a reasonable likeness to Sir Reuben, it wasn't him. It is a puzzler, isn't it? I said. Have you traced his movements? To an extent, Parker said. His wife and daughter are traveling in the south of France. Sir Reuben had dinner out with friends. They confirmed he was with them until nearly nine. They were going to a performance and invited Sir Reuben to join, but he declined, saying he had an appointment. The maid heard him come in around midnight. I do not know where he was between nine and midnight, or between midnight and 5.30 when he left his bed. His disappearance is causing a stir. Apparently, he was to be at a very important meeting today about railroads. There is nothing to indicate he planned to miss the event. His dinner partner said he seemed eager to ink the deal. Parker linked in, pointing at me with a fine cigar. On the surface of it, the man was there one moment, he snapped his fingers, gone the next. Chapter 4. Engaged at Last Did you get an eyeful of the stranger in the architect's bathroom, Parker asked. I leaned back in my chair, crossing my legs. I did, I said. He was a literal plethora of contradictions. His hair was recently trimmed, well washed and so styled, but his ears had a deplorable buildup of wax. I didn't notice the wax, Parker said. Did you notice the rash of small red marks on his back? I did, I said. I don't know what manner they came by, though. Fleas, Parker said. They were several days old. His feet were well washed and neat, but covered with blisters. I supposed he could have been out, missed the last train back, and decided to walk. That certainly would do it, I said, especially in new shoes. Did you see the fingerprints on the side of the tub, Parker asked? I did not! I nearly shouted, impressed with Parker and ashamed of myself. Excellent work! Did you notice the chain on the pince-nez? Parker nodded. High quality. I've never seen the likes of it. A commission piece, I said. I have a mind to take out an advertisement to find the jeweler. Could be a shortcut to the owner. Odd thing about the pince-nez, Parker said. As strong as the correction was, I would have expected them to belong to someone older. Much older. The goldsmith could help answer the question, I said. Bunter, take out an ad. After I finished dictating the careful wording, Bunter left us again. Sug has arrested the maid, Gladys. Parker tapped the ashes from the cigar, the small action betraying annoyance. As if a stick of a girl could have manhandled a body that size into a bathtub. He's convinced it's her, as she admits to not remembering if she closed the window. Her timetables for last night are in question. The more she's asked, the less certain she is. And Sir Julian Frakes put the time of death between 10 and midnight. Suggs suggested Suggs either had to arrest the maid or the stone-deaf mother. Mr. Tibbs was on the train back from Manchester at the time, or Suggs would have arrested him too. One bit of controversy, our doctor puts the time of death two days ago, not last night, contradicting Sir Julian's time estimate. Sir Julian is standing by his estimate, but it's created a bit of a stir, bringing Mr. Tibbs back into things. In fact, the sturdy foundation of the man's alibi has been shaken. Suggs found that Tibbs had his bags checked at the train station and is unable to give a reason why. The girl Gladys has changed her story twice on what time Tibbs returned home that night. What was a mystery is now a mess. Are we any closer to having a name for the uninvited house guest, I asked? No, Parker said. Suggs has circulated a description of the man with no responses. You might want to reconsider sending the description with the man having a beard, I said. It was shaved off rather recently. I inspected his mouth and found small hairs of his beard. He was also missing several molars, another thing at odds with his gentlemanly appearance. Wait, Parker said. You inspected his mouth? Yes, using a pocket torch, I said. I collected a few hairs. Bunter, could you please pass that vial to Parker? Parker scratched his head. How could a man shave himself and fail to notice whiskers in his mouth? He couldn't, I said, unless he was shaved after he was dead. Bunter delivered the samples to Parker and topped off his coffee. 
The telephone rang and Bunter withdrew immediately. Black, Parker said, definitely from a beard. He wore it long, which isn't uncommon given the season. My lord, Bunter said, there is a woman on the phone. She is yelling, sir. I, I do believe she is deaf. How I love a good curiosity. I moved with haste to the receiver. Hello, Lord Peter? The woman at the other end was indeed shouting. I did the same. Mrs. Tibbs, is that you? Yes, this is Lord Peter. What seems to be the problem? They've arrested my Alfie, she said. Cuffed him up like a common criminal and hauled him away. He said I should call you. I'm all alone, Sir Peter. I don't know what to do. First Gladys, now Alfie. There's no sense in it. You have to come and sort the matter out. I will be there in all due haste, madam. I hung up the receiver and darted into the room. Bunter, get your camera. Hurry, man. We've been engaged. Parker, have you rubber-soled shoes? No, I'll lend you some. Say, I have an idea. Let's pool the two cases, Parker. Two heads and all that. What do you say? Slipping off his shoes and his coat on, Parker quickly readied himself. It works to my advantage, so certainly. The sight it must have been, we three men darting about the house like chickens without heads. Shoes were provided, hats were acquired, cases were packed. How much money have I got, I said, digging through my pockets. There was an assortment of coins atop what was in my wallet. I knew a man once who let an infamous prisoner escape because he didn't have two pennies for the underground, I said. The man at the barricade wouldn't accept the five-pound note for a two-penny ride, and while they argued, the fiend slipped onto a train and vanished. Right then, everyone have everything? I led the way out of the flat, Parker following, Bunter in the rear. Out in the dreary bustle of Piccadilly, a thought stopped me cold. Suggs is likely to be there. I have to short-circuit him. Hail a cab, I'll be right back. I ran back up the stairs and rang my mother. Parker walked into 59 Queen Carolyn Mansions, but Bunter and I were thwarted by a surly Suggs. I explained, calmly of course, that I'd been retained by Mrs. Tibbs on behalf of her son. As my client was aside, that was where I was going. Retained, Suggs howled. She'll be retained if she doesn't watch herself. Why would she would be already if she wasn't deaf as a post? What do you have against me, Suggs? I don't take food out of your mouth. No one paid me a penny to help you find Lady Addenbury's emeralds. Suggs crossed his arms over his chest. It's my duty to keep the public out. I sat on the staircase, showing no intention to leave. I wholeheartedly agree with that mission, but I am not the public. I am in the employ of... Inspector, a fluster constable said. The yard is on the phone, sir. The chief constable says Lord Peter Wimsey is to be accorded every privilege in his role as private detective for Mrs. Tibbs. I leapt to my feet. Outplayed, my good man. No, mean look, no need looking so sour. You had a full house, but I had five aces. My mother is a good friend of the chief constable's wife. I led Bunter up to the top floor. Mrs. Tibbs sat in the front window worrying a handkerchief. My dear lady, we are here, I said loudly, then more softly. Parker, show Bunter to the bathroom, if you will. The body is gone, but there may still be evidence intact. We took turns, us three, inspecting and photographing the entirety of the house. With Suggs' lips loosened, we learned that none other than Sir Reuben Levy had been seen in the vicinity of Battersea Park around 9.15. Suggs connected the dots and determined the man in the bathtub and Sir Reuben were one and the same counter to Parker's assertions that the two men were different. Miss Gladys Horrocks was not where she claimed to be that Monday night. Instead of being home looking after Mrs. Tibbs, she was at a Glazer's ball with her man, William Williams. This fed into Sugg's theory that a ladder was used to access the window, as Glazers always carry ladders. When we were finished, the only problem that remained was Mrs. Tibbs. We couldn't leave her alone. A quick pull of residents of the lower flourish showed no suitable solutions. Pack a bag, Mrs. Tibbs. I'm taking you to my mother in Denver. Chapter 5 The Vanishing Sir Reuben. Parker was able to finagle access for me and Buncher to the Levy House. 
Bunter set to work photographing fingerprints on Sir Reuben's toiletries while Parker and I inspected his rooms. The maid said she hadn't touched the room, preserving it as it were. In the near center of the bed was an impression made by a man. Five feet, ten inches, I said, measuring the depression. Not an inch more. I screwed in my monocle and inspected the pillows. Two hair samples, one black, one red. Lady Levy is a blonde, I believe. I collected the samples. Tell me again the timetable. Parker was inspecting the windows. The maid says she heard Sir Reuben enter the house about midnight. He is a man who does for himself, so his valet had gone to bed at his usual time of 10.30. She only heard him because he was having trouble sleeping. She didn't see Sir Reuben then, I asked. See him, Parker repeated. No, the house was closed up for the night. Sir Reuben told them he was likely to be late and gave direction that they should close up as usual. He had his latch key. His man had been given orders to wake him at 5.30 to allow time ahead of his meeting. Bunter entered the room, staying quiet until we acknowledged him. My lord, I'm finished with the fingerprints. If there's nothing else you'd like photographed, I will return to the flat to process the plates. I looked at Parker, who gave a quick shake of his head. Do as you will, Bunter. When he left, I faced Parker, remarkably little to work with. Still, I suspect the man in this room Monday night was not Sir Reuben. I suspect the man came into the house dressed as Sir Reuben. He climbed the stairs and readied for bed as Reuben, making a few little mistakes. He did not know Reuben folded his clothes or slept on the outside of the bed. He had to guess on his shoes, put them out in the parlor, which he correctly guessed. Parker raised a questioning brow. This red-haired man came into the house using Sir Reuben's own key, came up to his bedroom, put on his clothes, actually got into his bed, and then got up dressing again in his own clothes, I assume, and made his way back out to the street. That is exactly what he did, I said, clapping my hand. By golly, he's a cheeky one, bold as anything. Tell me this, Parker, who would most benefit from Sir Reuben's disappearance? Parker gave it a moment's thought. An American by the name of J.P. Milligan is going against him in the railroad. Did you hear that Sir Julian Freak is the one who suggested Lady Levy travel for her health? It seems Sir Julian had once competed for the then Catherine Ford's attention. She chose Sir Reuben, who wasn't the rich man he is now. They practically eloped. Sir Julian has remained close to the Levy family, I understand. After leaving Parker, I called on an old acquaintance. The Honorable Freddie Abernoth was more than willing to accept a spontaneous invitation to lunch. The Honorable Freddie is in his mid-twenties and a few shades darker than my own blonde. He was less than the comfortable companion I remembered, grumbling and complaining at every opportunity to the point that the waiter seemed afraid, afraid to approach our table. I brought the conversation around to business and Sir Reuben Levy. He had the highest regards for the man. I was surprised to learn that Sir Reuben had a charming daughter and that Freddie was among the hopefuls. After advising him to pay a call on Lady Levy upon her return, Freddie carried the conversation forward to the name I wanted, John P. Milligan. You can't trust the Yanks. It was going to work out all right with Levy mustering the troops. Without him, Milligan is, lucky to, is likely to have his way. Where is that waiter? Never mind him, I said. I think I met Milligan once. Big man, thick black hair. Freddy shook his head. You're thinking of somebody else. Mulligan is about the same height as me, five foot ten and bald as a gourd. After lunch, I called on John P. Milligan. He received me with unflapping generosity. I only wanted to set eyes on him, and as Freddy said, there wasn't a hair on the man's head. As I was there, I concocted a story on the spot about the Church of St. John at the Gate needing repairs, which was true, and my mother hosting a bazaar to raise money, also true, and her latest idea to add speakers from the business world to increase interest, not in the least bit true. I babbled to the point that I wasn't even listening, but John P. Milligan stayed with me and offered to write a check on the spot. I wasn't expecting such generosity and nearly flubbed it. In the end, I suggested he send it directly to the victor. He had his secretary write it out on the spot. 1,000 pounds. Parker and I met back up at my flat. 
Bunter had finished processing his plates and the fingerprint images supported my theory as he reported his findings. There's one set of prints on the bedside book and the hairbrush. I found two sets on the toothbrush and the mirror. One set of prints were directly over the other. I also found two sets of bare foot marks on the linoleum in front of the sink. One set was large and matched the size of Sir Reuben's shoe. The other was small. I put it at a size 10 sock at most, he said. It matches, I said. He was clever enough not to use the hairbrush. Too much chance of his red hair being left behind. He didn't touch the book either. No need to fake that. Parker looked at the prints side by side. But he picked up the mirror and the toothbrush, at least wetting it, possibly using it. There's a logic to it. It's hard to make a room look slept in without sleeping in it. Exactly, I said. Ruffling up the covers leaves a different effect than getting in, tossing a bit, and then getting out. My lord, Bunter said, this letter came for you. I took it, surprised at its contents. It seems we may have found the owner of the pince-nez. A Mr. Crimplesham of Milford Hill is claiming ownership. He sent along the description. He said he lost it on a train coming back from London. He described the chain accurately, which was supposedly a gift from his daughter. The owner, Parker echoed, could be our murderer. Certainly a possibility, I said. Or it could be he generally lost the glasses and our murderer made use of the opportunity. Can you have the yard verify the prescription matches? Parker agreed immediately. Then I'll go pay a visit to Mr. Crimplesham. No, I said. I'll take that chore. You have your hands full with tax tasks I can't do in your place. Chapter 6 Heads I Win, Tails You Lose Bunter and I took the first train to Milford Park. Parker had provided me with Sir Reuben's personal journal, which I took for reading. It was a factual detailing of a detailed man. Sir Reuben spent extravagantly on his wife and daughter, but was frugal on himself. The majority of entries were simple accountings of his day. Dinner with Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so. There was nothing of interest until I saw the name Milligan on his dinner list. It showed that Milligan had been in the Levy house, even if he didn't have red hair. In Milford Hill, I sent Bunter into a shop to fetch a paper while I called on Mr. Crimplesham. The man was an attorney and no less than 80 years old. He readily identified the glasses and the chain, happy to have both returned. In his parlor, he elaborated on his business trip to London and the crowded coach on his return trip. He knew he had them when he boarded the train, and he did not have them when he arrived at home. You heard about the body found in Battersea Park, I asked. Of course, he said, terrible business, but what has it to do with me? I said I found the glasses in an unusual place. They were on that body, I said. He was a solidly built man, late fifties, black hair, possibly with a beard. Could he have been on the train? Mr. Crimplesham rubbed his jaw. There were so many people, I, I can't say he wasn't on the train. I can say that I did not sit next to anyone fitting that description. It seemed I'd put myself on a wild goose chase. I returned to Bunter with the news of our expedition being awash. He had found a copy of Sir Julian Frake's latest book, which the Post gave the highest marks to. Upon returning home, we learned that Parker, in fact, had a very different day. The inquest was held into the body in Mr. Tibbs' home. Your mother was there, Parker said. She graciously invited me to sit with her. My mother? Why did she? Ah, uh, uh, she brought Mrs. Tibbs into the city. Suggs testified. Then Sir Julian, Parker said. Then the Scotland Yard's own doctor, who concurred with Sir Julian's assessment to the cause of death, but not the time. Both doctors stood by their opinions, which was hard for our man given Sir Julian's title and distinguished accomplishments. Tibbs opened under pressure and admitted to being in a house of ill repute for several hours on the night in question. He sent an old friend on the train, he wouldn't give a name, and he agreed to go for a drink. The place was raided and the girl he bought a drink for helped him escape. He got the bruise in the process. He got home about two in the morning, ate his cold dinner, and went to bed. Miss Gladys had snuck out that night to go to the ball. Her beau testified on her behalf, apologized, apologizing for getting her to go, but swearing she was back just after 
She went straight to bed also. The coroner came down hard on Suggs for the maid and for Tibbs. Try as he might, Suggs couldn't defend his arrest in the light of the testimony and the pair were freed. I was speaking with your mother after when Sir Julian joined us. Your mother knows him, of course, and introduced me. He asked me to escort him home, that he had something he wanted to tell me. Did he confess? I asked hopefully. Oh, of course not. He did admit that Sir Reuben was coming to visit him Monday night. Sir Reuben, it seemed, was worried about a health condition and wanted to quietly consult Sir Julian. He wanted to keep away from his wife. Sir Julian said that he had once cared a great deal for Catherine Ford Levy and always took care to protect her from pain. He did not come forward sooner because Sir Reuben hoped the matter would be confidential. He did not find anything unduly wrong and with Sir Reuben and sent him out the door around 11. Sir Julian lives adjacent to St. Luke's Hospital, I asked. He has two homes, Parker said. His own, which is not far from your own, and an attached house to St. Luke's that comes with his appointment as head of the hospital. The ground floor is reserved for seeing patients and has a door connecting privately to the hospital. He saw me in the library on the second floor. It is not as well appointed as your library, of course, but it was comfortable. His bedroom opened off of it. All in all, excellent accommodations for an amenity. After Parker left, I sat down with Brandy and Dante, but my mind wouldn't relax. It felt as if I had all the pieces to the puzzle, and the only thing I had to do was to drop them in place. Conversations interrupted Dante's writing. There was something I ought to see, something I heard, but what? The next thing I knew, I woke up in my bed, Bunter asleep on the chair. He awoke as I sat up. It happened again, I said. Yes, yes, Bunter said. You thought you were back in Germany. I told you the noise was our own troops, and eventually you believed me. I said you were off duty and the Major should get some sleep. I made you a draft, which you took willingly enough. You thanked me, calling me Sergeant Bunter. It's been months since you had an attack. You've been working too hard. Humiliation had me picking the non-existent fuzz from my covers. 1918 had been years ago, and it had been hours ago, again. I think we'll retire to the country, Bunter. Be so kind as to put a call through to Parker. Tell him to put out the description of the man in the bathtub with the beer and without the pince nez. Have him send it to all the workhouses and such. He should wire us at Denver when he sees any results. All right, now we're at the part of the story where we give you a chance to catch the killer. Deaf lady. It's definitely the mama. You think it's the deaf mom? I sure do. I have totally been following along and know who all the characters are. Okay, so who are the characters? We have the deaf mom. Uh-huh, we mom. have the maid Gladys. Uh-huh, we have the uh, um, the doctor, Sir Julian, the one who said that the body was had died sometime that day. Uh-huh, deaf mom. Um, I think I just have to stick with dead mom here. <laughs> you're, you're what? You're sticking with the mom? I think I got to stick with dead mom. <laughs> I, yeah, I guess we don't. Oh, okay. I have, I have my list now. So we also have um, John P. Mulligan, the Milligan, the one who gave him a thousand pounds for the for the church. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, we have the Honorable Freddie Abernoth, who is a wooey wooey over Sir Reuben's daughter. Those are two different people. Hmm? I have not been paying attention. <laughs> so everybody it's blends together when you're zoning out. I know, you have to pay attention to those 88 keys in front of you. Uh-huh, all of them. So there's, you know, another question. Here, let me ask you this one. Rather than who did it, how did they get the body into the bathtub? Catapult through the window. I did not have that as an option. I had up the steps through the door, up a ladder through the window, across the roof and through the window. I had not thought of catapult through the window. Did they have the pince-nez on when they catapulted the... 50-year-old naked body through the window? No, they actually catapulted that up separately. <laughs> Just happened to land in exactly the right place? Actually, I don't think it was a catapult. It might have been a trebuchet. Oh, it would be a trebuchet. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think so. Anyway. Yeah. I want to remind listeners that my newsletter on the Prowl comes out every month, 
and in it I fill it with just a bunch of fun stuff a lot of times it's the little things that I learn while writing such as how to break somebody's back you can sign up on my website tgwolf.com and I would really appreciate it if you all could help me out by pre-ordering my new book Raising Stakes it comes out February 14th but is available for pre-order so here's the skinny on it the first day of summer is the last day of a young accountant's life. Colin McHenry is out for his regular run when an SUV crosses his path, crushing him. Within hours of a hit skip, Cleveland homicide detective Jesus de la Cruz finds the vehicle in the owner's garage, who's on vacation three time zones away. The setup is obvious, but not the hand behind it. The suspects lead, read like a list out of a textbook. The jilted fiancé, the jealous co-worker, the overlooked subordinate, the dirty client. Raising Stakes, book number three in the De La Cruz Case File series. Pre-order it now. Sorry, Jack, no tribuches involved in this one. Maybe the next one. Oh, I like that little riff. Is it called a riff in piano? It's called a riff in guitar. Uh, sure, man. Sure. You want to sure. call it a riff? Heck if I know. All right. Chapter 7, A Matter of Timing. One week later, Buncher and I were back in the city. The time at my family's estate put me to rights. It was even good to spend time with my brother, helping me remember why I preferred the city. Parker and I exchanged telegrams. He had found a working house who had a man fitting our description of the undoctored man in the bathtub. I challenged Parker to befriend one of the med students at St. Luke's Hospital, but to be subtle about it. It was this med student who joined Park Parker and I in my library. The lad was uncomfortable in my home, despite Bunter's attempt to put him at ease. He made a faux pas or two, little things that I immediately let go, that he seemed too aware of. Eventually, Parker let the cat out that he was a detective for Scotland Yard. Well, that got our boy's attention. I don't understand how you were able to put it together, he said. It's not like a mystery story where everyone remembers exactly where they were at the exact time as well as what Mrs. Philpot was wearing. I will concede that authors consolidate what is often a lengthy process, Parker said. But in the end, we do end up with nearly the detail as in a book. It's true, I said. Take yourself, for example. What were you doing last Tuesday? I have no idea, the young man thought for a moment. I was probably at the hospital, as it's my usual day. That's all I could attest to. Try this, I said. When were you at the hospital last, and what were you doing? I was there yesterday, he said, working on the dissection in the morgue. I was finishing a study on the foot. Good, Parker said. When, he, when had you started on the foot? The previous Friday, the young doctor said. I had gone to visit my parents over the weekend. Friday I began work on the foot, but didn't finish it. Together, Parker and I backed him through the pages of his sketchbook to Tuesday. He had been working hard on the hand. Sir Julian had kept the head for himself, and the jokester in the class had the abdomen. We asked simple questions. Was the arm male or female? Was the hair dark or light? Was the skin taut or saggy? Was the flesh sinewy or fatty? Were jokes made about the cadaver? In the end, we had it all. I had no idea I knew that much, he said. He was Hebrew, dark-haired, beyond his 20s but not yet old, and he was well-fed. And he was a gentleman, the doctor said. Why can't exams work like this? I would do much better if they wouldn't just plop a question in front of me. After Bunter showed him out, I watched from my window. Can you get the order to exhume? I asked Parker. I can, Parker said. I hope we're right. As do I, I said. My mother came with me. She's with Lady Levy. The lady seems to think her husband is being held somewhere until it's too late to stop that railroad deal. I pulled back the curtain. I think you should stay the night, Parker. Why? What do you see, he asked, joining me at the window. Something happened to the boy? No, he got off easily enough, I said. But then no one is going to think we brought him into our confidence. But I suspect you and I need to be vigilant. 
vigilant. <laughs> Vigilant's a word somewhere. <laughs> After a bit of back and forth, Parker was determined to leave. I did win two points of consolation. He would take a cab and he would not share it with anyone. Minutes after closing the door, Bunter was opening again. Parker stalked in, tossing his hat to Bunter. Fine, he said. I'll stay the night. Bunter, make up a room for Parker. Get him a brandy first so he can tell us what happened. Back in our places, brandy all around, Parker began. I hailed the cab and was about to step in when Sir Julian ran up to me. He was out of breath as if he'd been running. He asked to share the cab as he'd been out, called out on an emergency. He knew where I was heading, that is, where I lived. The address he had was beyond it. I let him have the cab alone, saying I was going in the opposite direction, but not in a hurry. He gave the driver the address of the emergency, and I came back here. The next day, I indulged my curiosity. As it were, I had not yet met Sir Julian in person. He had open office hours on Tuesday and Thursday, so I paid a visit. Every manor of Londoner was in his office, and a few from farther afield. A young girl stepped on my foot. Her mother admonished her in French, which I speak fluently. We began to chat. She and her daughter were Slavic and had recently arrived in England. Her daughter was having nightmares, too many atrocities at too young of an age. Sir Julian was helping her at no charge. He was her hero. At my turn, I was escorted into his office. He was in his mid-fifties, about five foot ten with reddish hair. His eyes were not kindly, but calculating, analytical. What can I do for you, Lord Peter? He asked. I'm having trouble with my dreams. I described to him the last occurrence, which Bunter intercepted, and several other of the episodes dating back. He looked in my eyes with a pocket torch. 1918 was not a good year. What was your rank? Major, I said. Army infantry. Sir Julian explained how my nerves were damaged, and while they were healing, they were not fully healed. He prescribed rest and avoiding the stressful, overthinking conditions that sometimes triggered the episodes. And then he directed me to roll up my sleeves and prepare a syringe. syringe. When he brought it near, I clamped my hand down on his own. I have this type of treatment before, I said. I can't stomach it. He must have seen the truth in my eyes. No, then, he said, just the prescription. <coughs> Opioids. <laughs> Thank you, I said. I will try the prescription, and I'll call again if I still have episodes. Fine, he said, but make an appointment. My calendar is nearly full. Later in the evening, I met Parker at the cemetery where they bury the unclaimed cadavers. Parker was overseeing the work of four men. Watch your step and don't get too close, he warned. Lady Levy is due here any time. A few moments later, women's voices had Parker and I looking up. My mother was on the arm of a younger, smaller woman. It was impossible to tell who was helping whom. I picked my way back around the grave and became the arms they both leaned on. Ready, Mr. Parker, said one of the grave diggers. Parker stood in front of the open hole, preventing the ladies from seeing. Thank you for coming, Lady Levy. Can you describe any distinguishing marks your husband may have had? Lady Levy swallowed hard and nodded. He had a scar low on his side from appendicitis. He had two moles on his chest, on his right side, very close together. There was a small scar on his left elbow and, and one under his chin. Parker twisted slightly, looked, looked down in the hole. He nodded silently. I am sorry, Lady Levy. No, she cried, collapsing into my arms. It is impossible. He can't be dead. He can't. Who did this to Reuben? Who did this to my Reuben? Parker stood tall, looking at the rock of public service. He will be caught, my lady. And then he looked at me. Suggs has been dispatched. I gathered the women to me, offering strength. He will be too late. Suggs is always too late. Suggs, in fact, was just in time. Sir Julian Frakes had just finished inking a letter to me, detailing the facts. A deadly syringe was at the ready. He had lunged for it when Suggs entered, but was physically restrained. I won't bore you with all the details. You know many of them already. What did he do? 
he executed an elaborate plan to kill Reuben Levy and have him mysteriously disappear. He'd been concocting the plan for some time, waiting for the right body double to make his appearance. He was called out to a workhouse where a man had been injured by falling from a scaffolding. It broke his back. The man who had superficially looked like Sir Reuben would be dead in a day. After receiving the body at St. Luke's, Sir Julian washed the man to pass scrutiny as a Hebrew gentleman. Sir Reuben invited Sir Julian invited Sir Reuben to his house on the premise of providing documents on an Argentine investment. He invited Sir Reuben into the library and once he was bent over fake documents, struck him with the fireplace poker in the exact place to break his neck. Using the private door to the hospital, Reuben Levy became the workhorse, workhouse cadaver donated to the medical students. The workhouse cadaver was to become the mystery that kept Scotland Yard from looking for Reuben Levy. Sir Julian carried the body up to the roof, moving easily from his own roof of from his own roof to the roof of Queen Caroline Mansion. The open window was his unexpected opportunity. He fashioned a rope from sheets and lowered the body in. An accomplished climber, Sir Julian easily moved between the bathroom and the roof, adding the pince-nez he'd found in the pocket of a greatcoat. Sir Julian had controlled nearly every variable. Nearly. His downfall, in his opinion, was me. As long as the two cases were separate, the odds were favorable they would not be solved. But together, the odds flipped. <coughs> Why did he do it? For love, of course. Even 20 years later, Sir Julian had not gotten over, had not gotten over Christine Ford choosing Reuben Levy over him. Okay, here's the postmortem. It was a pretty enjoyable story. Um, Sir Peter Whimsey, he's one of my favorites. He doesn't take himself too seriously, and he weaves in some laughs. Now let's see if the story works in reverse. So Sir Julian has never gotten over Catherine Ford choosing Reuben Levy. He's had some 20-odd years to plot his revenge, and all he needed was a body double. Good so far, right? An accident at a workhouse, a.k.a. prison, gives him just what he needs. A mad-fitting Reuben's basic description has a death sentence from a fall that broke his neck. Sir Julian suggests to Catherine Levy and her daughter that they should take a trip to France for Catherine's health, of course. She and Reuben agree. Waiting until the women would have gone, Sir Julian puts the fall victim on ice. Where and how are details we don't need to worry about. Once Reuben is alone, Sir Julian invites him over to review an investment proposal. Sir Julian has been acting as a friend to the family, and Reuben has no hesitation in going. Perhaps Sir Julian swore him to secrecy on the hot deal because Reuben does not tell his dinner companions who he's meeting with. Reuben comes over. Sir Julian hits him with a fireplace iron, breaking his neck and killing him. Then Reuben is stripped and put into the morgue for the med students, and the fall victim is washed and groomed. The fall victim is still on ice somewhere because the med students began working on Reuben's cadaver that Thursday or Friday before the bathtub body is discovered. The timeline is a little indistinct here. I don't think there's an error, just that the days aren't defined well enough for the reader to know the time relationship between the fall victim dying and Reuben. The Scotland Yard doc, doc says he's been dead for a while, where Julian says, no, 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 he just died. Either way, Reuben is now an instrument of science, and Sir Julian has to dispose of a body. So, naturally, he carries the naked man to the roof, stuffs him through the first open window he finds. What? <laughs> I mean, the logic was so good up to that point. Up to that point, I'm just like, yeah, I okay, I'm buying it, I'm buying it. He carried a naked man to the roof, slung him over his shoulder, and then stuffs him through the first window. In the in the book, it's not even like he's trying to incriminate Tibbs. Nope, just first open window. 
being that the man isn't Reuben Levy and the cream of society won't be looking for him, why not dress him as a pauper and leave him in the alley? Dress him as a sailor and throw him in the Thames? Falsify papers and use him too as a cadaver? I could probably come up with a hundred ways for the head of the hospital to dispose of a body that doesn't include rappelling down the side of a building with a naked dead man over his shoulder. For as much as I don't buy the dead roof running, the naked roof running, sorry, and did enjoy this story. <laughs> Let me try that again. <laughs> For as much as I don't buy the naked roof running, I did enjoy the story, mostly because of Peter, Death, Brendan, Whimsy. So that wraps up this episode of Mysteries to Die For. Support our show by subscribing, telling a mystery lover about us, and giving us a five-star review. Become a member of our Body Bag Brigade by financially supporting this season with a one-time donation. Pay what you can. Information is in the show notes and on our website, tgwolf.com forward slash podcast. Mysteries to Die For is written by T.G. Wolf with contribution from Jack Wolf. Whimsy and Whose Body was written by T.G. Wolf, adapted from Whose Body by Dorothy L. Sayers. Music and production are by Jack Wolf. Episode art is by T.G. Wolf. All right, Jack, that wraps us up for the day. Take us out. <laughs>